so many people, especially so many blue-collar men, lost their jobs to globalization, I think that they lost their sense of themselves, not just as men, but as contributing members to society. They used to know what their place was in the kind of fabric of society, and they were beginning to feel like that that was now gone. And they began to look around for reasons. Coming up on In Contrast, Richard Russo. I'm Ilan Stabans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Richard Russo is the author of eight novels, two short story collections, and a memoir. His novel Empire Falls received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2002. Russo has also written for film and television, including an adaptation of Empire Falls for HBO. His most recent novel is Chances Are. We'll begin with a reading from Chances Are. The three old friends arrived on the island in reverse order, from the farthest to nearest. Lincoln, a commercial real estate broker, practically across the country from Las Vegas. Teddy, a small press publisher from Syracuse. Mickey, a musician and sound engineer from nearby Cape Cod. All were 66 years old and had attended the same small liberal arts college in Connecticut, where they had slung hash at a campus sorority. The other hashers, mostly frat boys, claimed to be there by choice because so many of the thetas were hot, whereas Lincoln, Teddy, and Mickey were scholarship students doing the job out of varying degrees of economic necessity. Lincoln, as good-looking as any of the frat boys, was immediately made a face man, which meant donning a scratchy white waist-length jacket to serve the girls in the sorority's large dining room. Teddy, who had worked in a restaurant during his junior and senior years of high school, became a cook's helper, making salads, stirring sauces, plating entrees and desserts. Mickey? They took one look and escorted him over to the sink where a mountain of dirty pots sat piled alongside a large cardboard box of off-brand steel scrubbers. Such was their freshman year. By the time they were seniors, Lincoln had been made head hasher and could offer both his friends positions in the dining room. Teddy, who'd had enough of the kitchen, promptly accepted. But Mickey said that he doubted there was a serving jacket big enough to fit him. And anyway... He preferred remaining a kitchen slave to making nice with the fancy girls out front, since at least the galley was his own. Converging on the island 44 years later, all three were grateful for the educations they received at Minerva, where the classes had been small and their professors available and attentive. To the naked eye, it looked like most other colleges did in the late 60s and early 70s, the boys had long hair and wore faded jeans and psychedelic t-shirts. In dorm rooms, kids smoked dope, covered the smell with incense, listened to the doors in Buffalo Springfield. But these were matters of style. To most of their classmates, the war seemed a long way off, something that was going on in Southeast Asia and Berkeley and on TV, not in coastal Connecticut. Editorials in the Minerva Echo were forever lamenting the lack of any real activism. Nothing's happening here, one said, riffing on the famous song lyric. 
Why that is ain't exactly clear. Richard Russo, it is a pleasure to welcome you to In Contrast. Well, it's great to be here. I want to start with a sentence that I have seen repeated in a number of different outlets, probably most recently in Time magazine, that goes more or less like this, nobody gets men the way Richard Russo does. I wonder if you can give me your reaction to it. Well, it's a lovely compliment. I would probably enjoy it even more if it were true. <laughs> I, I, um, I think I know my guys. And when I say that, I don't mean just this new book, but the other male characters going back to the beginning of my career as a writer. The people that I invent, both male and female, are based in large part on my own experiences. And I had some interesting male figures in my life in the early going. My father was a Normandy guy, and when he came back from the Second World War, he and my mother promptly split up. He'd been taking orders for a long time on the other side of the world. I think he was all done taking orders from anybody, certainly from my mother. He was on the periphery of my life a lot. Because I knew he was a war hero, and because he was gone a lot, I paid enormous attention to him and the decisions that he had made since coming back from the Second World War. I knew that freedom meant an awful lot to him. Having fought for freedom, he was determined to be pretty much free in his own way when he got back to America. And he was an enormously entertaining guy. And so when I was around him, which was fairly rare, it was like I was taking notes. And that went on really until I was like 17 or 18, really, because then I became legal to drink. And then we became closer. And during a lot of those years thereafter, I worked road construction with my old man during the summers when I would come back from college. And so there was my father and this hard manual labor that he did. He was getting a little older, but he still had a chiseled body. And, and despite being banged up, my God, could that man work? And the same was true with the guys that he worked with on the road. And they were all World War II guys like him. And they had wonderful senses of humor. And they worked really hard. And they didn't get paid much. And they were certainly never overpaid. And so I was taking notes on all of their behaviors and paying particular attention to what I thought of as the issues of manhood, what it means to be a man, because I had grown up more in my mother's company than my father. So I was paying particular attention because I hoped to be a man one day myself and <laughs> was aware of the fact that I wasn't quite there yet. But then there was also my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who had served in both world wars. He was far too old for the second, but he enlisted anyway. And when he came back from the Second World War, he could not have been more of a contrast to my father. Where my father was charming and outgoing, my grandfather was a quiet man. He came home from the Pacific with malaria that he never really got over. And he was a different sort of man to behold. As I said, quiet, but also there was a profound sense of hard-won dignity and honesty about him. He never asked anybody for anything. And he was very quiet and very cautious sort of man. And I adored him. And so I watched him, too, in the very different kind of profile that he was providing for me. And in the event that I ever grew up to be a man myself, I had a couple of pretty good templates to look at, different as they were. And most of my male characters that Kirkus Review has said that I understand, if I understand them, I think it's because 
not having a father at home when I was a kid made me particularly attentive to the way men comported themselves. And trying to figure out what it meant to be a man was, of course, absolutely essential if I was going to marry and be not only a husband but also a father. So I took pretty good notes. And what, if I can ask, what kind of man did you grow up to become? In what way are you like your father or like your grandfather or unlike them, both in presence and in absence? How did those notes shape you as the man that you are today? Well, I would say first and foremost, as much as I loved my old man, when it came time to be a husband and a father, neither of which I knew an awful lot about, despite all that note-taking, the one thing that I decided to be early with regard to my wife and my daughters was present. When my daughters came home from school, my wife worked longer hours than I did. I was a writer but also a teacher at the time, but as a result of those professional choices, I could be home when my daughters got home, and so home I was. When they came home at the end of the school day at 3 o'clock or 3.30, whatever that was, they found me there, and they always found me there. And we didn't have an awful lot of rules in the house, but one of the rules was that when it came time for dinner, we all sat down for dinner together, and we all talked. My feeling was that I was probably going to get a lot of things wrong, but absence would not be one of those things. When my daughters looked up, they would see me, or I wouldn't be very far away. And the same was true with my wife. I wanted to be around. So in that case, I suspect my father taught me something in terms of the negative of what he had done. Of course, this new book has a lot to do with the Vietnam War and the effects that it had on people my age. But I, like one of my characters, got a very high draft number and so did not have to serve. So I didn't come back from a war. I didn't return having seen the things that he witnessed. So it was a little bit easier for me to assume the kind of responsibilities that I wanted to assume. I, you know, I wanted to be a husband. I wanted to be a good father. The other thing was, is even as all of this was going on, once my father became ill, which he did fairly early in life, he only lived to his mid-60s. Once we became friends, after he died, I discovered how important his, I don't want to say ghost exactly, I don't want to make this into a supernatural sort of thing here, but... He didn't go away when he died, let's put it that way. He continued to be constantly on my mind. And so as I wrote these books and I was thinking about manhood, what it means to be a man in this day and age, I found myself returning to him again and again. His ability to make other people feel better in his presence. He had a way of walking into a room and lighting it up, and people gravitated toward him. And so some of my notions of masculinity really come out in these books. And I don't mean this to sound terribly vain, but when I'm out on book tour, I find myself at times trying to do some of the same things that he did. It's not a terrible thing to be charming in life or to try to be. And so I find myself gravitating towards some of his practices. And of course, my grandfather is never very far away either. His sense of duty, his sense of decency and morality, mm -hmm. I still think of daily. You were with your mother, though. The father was, as you just described it, the absent figure. Yeah. And I wonder, in contrast, what kind of notes you were taking on the female characters. Going back to that first question, 
When you get men right, as critics and reviewers and readers say, does that mean that you get them in a way that you don't get the women? And I'm less interested in what people say than in what you think about yeah, the sure. difference between the characters that you create that are men and the characters that you create. In this book is about three friends, but it rotates around their passion and love and maybe obsession for one woman. And ironically, she's a kind of absence here. So I wonder if you could go in the direction that you were going on the male characters, but now bring the other side, the female. Well, there was a point at which somewhere, I want to say probably around my third novel, Nobody's Fool, where I realized a couple of things, one of which was that my first three novels had been largely about male misbehavior which was a lot of fun. My old man and his friends were a lot of fun, and I was drawing on those experiences of my younger life. As I say, I was obsessed with that question of what does it mean to be a man in this day and age, and so I was paying attention to that. But then, probably around Nobody's Fool, and then my next novel, Straight Man, a strange thing had happened, which was that I kind of woke up one day and looked around, and my beloved grandfather had died, and my father had died. And I wasn't carousing with construction workers anymore. I was beyond that. By that time, I had gone to the university and become an educated man of sorts. I could speak that language anyway. And so a lot of that kind of the rowdiness of my first three novels wasn't there anymore. And even more significantly than that, when I woke up that day, I kind of looked around and dawned on me that the most important people in my life, all of them, were female. My mother was still alive and still very close. She always lived close to my family. And so my mother was still very much alive at that point. And by that time, I had been married for a while and had two daughters and thought to myself, well, I guess the time has come, hasn't it, to start populating my novels as much with women as with men. And I have to say that right at the beginning... That was a fairly daunting task because, and I might not be alone in this, if you're a male writer, probably the one thing you don't want said of you is that Richard Russo doesn't know a damn thing about women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, So it's frightening. It's frightening. It, whenever you step out of your comfort area, which is multifaceted, there is your, your comfort area as a man, if you're a man. There are comfort areas in terms of, of class, in terms of race, in terms of life experience. And the farther you get out of those, the more you're depending upon your imagination because you don't have quite as many of those life experiences. And, and yet you know you have. That's part of the job. That is the job, really, of a novelist is to imagine. And so, but gradually what happened was I just started populating my books with more female characters. And I found that I didn't have to look very far. There was my wife right there. I was observing her every day and the way she went about being a woman and how she felt and thought about things. And as I said, my mother was very much alive. And then my daughters began to grow. And when I was writing Empire Falls, for instance, Miles Roby's daughter in that book, Tick, was about the same age as my daughters, who were then in 8th and 10th grade, and I would find myself mining them. My younger daughter, Kate, and I would sit down night after night. There was a minor character that I wanted to get right, and she was roughly my daughter Kate's age. And this character named Candace, we would sit down after dinner, and I would say to my daughter, let's go write some Candace. Well, that's what I would say the first few times, but then after we did it, I discovered if I missed a night, my daughter would say, are, are we going to write Candace tonight? And so we would go into the den, and we would write 
I would say, tell me two or three things that Candace did or said today. Then we would spend about an hour writing her, and then and Kate would say, well, well, no, she wouldn't say it that way. She'd say it this way. And what she's probably thinking is... And so over the course of, I would say, the next decade... When nobody said the thing that I feared most, which was that Richard Russo doesn't know a damn thing about women, as a writer, you become confident. And what you should have known right from the start is that human beings are human beings and we're much more alike than we are different. And don't be timid. Go about this as if you know what you're doing. Since nobody called me out and said that I was ignorant about half of our population, the female half, you know, I gained a little bit more confidence to the point where now I really don't feel anymore, even though somebody says that lovely thing that nobody understands men and the way they suffer better than I do. Believe me, that's music to my ears. But I don't have the same anxiety about writing outside my various comfort zones that I did when I was younger and, and more fearful. I want to stay for a second in that scene of you and your daughter writing Candace. It's a fascinating anecdote, and I wonder if it changed your relationship with her, if it made her more self-conscious of who she was at that age. I think you mentioned she was in 10th yeah, grade. She would have been probably in 8th or ninth. 8th grade. 8th or ninth grade. Yeah. And yeah. if it ultimately affected the family dynamic. In some ways, you were inviting your young daughter to take ownership of one of the characters that you were creating, and maybe the fact of turning her, at least partially, into a character herself. That's absolutely true on both counts. And the effect of that is perhaps even more profound than you imagined in posing that wonderful question. And I will skip ahead and then go back, but I will skip ahead and say that this daughter, Kate, my younger daughter, when we sat down and wrote a fictional character, there's, I think, a direct line to what happened a little bit earlier this year, which is that she just sold her first novel. <laughs> so that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You Both, were training her, too. I, I didn't realize it, of course. Yeah. Um, what I thought I was doing was simply getting her to come out of herself. I mean, really, what's worse than eighth grade, you know? Both of my daughters, we raised them to be thoughtful and outspoken and to tell us what was on their minds. But in the case of both girls, when you get into that situation where you're not a kid anymore, you're not an adult, but you're not a kid anymore, and there are things that you can't tell your dad anymore, and that's where Kate was, all I was really trying to do was to get her to tell me about her day, which she had stopped doing. Whatever device I was using, it was simply to get her to talk to me. But clearly, something registered there. The idea of getting out of your own being for a moment and imagining what it's like to be somebody else was something that I think lay dormant for a while because she became a visual artist. She's a very talented painter, and she married a painter. And that was what she did until a few years ago when she was living in England. She married a Brit. She was living in England. We were going over to visit her. And she said, oh, by the way, when you're there, 
I'm having a one-act play produced, mm. and you're welcome to come see it. <laughs> and then, you know, she went back to her art, and a few years ago, one day, deposited a screenplay on my desk. And then this novel, and my older daughter, Emily, had not exactly the same experience, but I think some of the same influences, because she became a bookstore owner. When she left college, she went to work for a literary agency and then my literary agency and became a bookseller and now owns her own bookstore here in Portland, Maine, where we live. I want to go back to the question of masculinity and connect it with those four years in college where American men learn to be excessive or to experiment or to figure out things with an enormous amount of freedom, but also with constraints and restraints to be men. You have written beautifully about campuses. You yourself were a professor in a small liberal arts college. And this novel has that back and forth between the 66-year-olds that were defined by the college and what happened at the college itself in those years. Because you're so attuned to how we perform or we are who we are, men and women, in what way have American colleges, from the time you were in one of them as a student to the time you were in them as a professor to the time you are in them as an imaginator, as yeah. a novelist, how have they changed in terms of manhood, what we can or cannot do. We, of course, are at a very crucial moment on campuses and they are very contested spaces. So talk to me about the experience of those four years for men when you were young, when you were a teacher, and when you write these characters. Well, and of course, it's not just colleges. There is a lot of toxic masculinity in the culture everywhere, right? We're not just talking about colleges here. It's interesting that when I was an undergraduate and looking back on my experiences there, I was at a large state university, the University of Arizona in Tucson. One of the very first things that I did there was to reject completely one image of masculinity, which was being forced down all of our throats because at the time it was a land-grant institution. And so ROTC at the time was mandatory. Think about your fall semester, which typically would begin at the end of August. They didn't even wait until after Labor Day. So think of dressing up in dress blues and marching around the desert in full regalia, which we all had to do as members of ROTC. If you were a male student, you had to do that. They made very clear to you that if you didn't do that, if you didn't sign up for ROTC, then you would be booted. You could not attend classes there if you were a male student without, I think it was at the time, I think it was two years, two years worth of ROTC. And I did it for the first semester of my freshman year. And in the second semester, I broke. I simply snapped. We were all in our dress blues, spit-shined shoes, being barked at by slightly older students, drilled around the practice field in 100-degree heat. But one day it rained, and so they herded us all into the gymnasium, which was the only building on campus that was large enough to accommodate all of us. And they started showing these reruns of a television show about war called The Big Picture, I believe it was called. And I was 
herded in there with everybody else, and they seated me. I was at the end of a row beneath a sign that said, exit. And I did. I walked out the door, let it close behind me, took off my name tag, and simply left. And of course, they sent people running at the double after me, and they wanted to know who I was, but my name tag was now in my pocket. They could threaten me, but they really couldn't do much of anything. And I never went back. And at the end of the second semester, I was called into the dean's office and said that if I did not return sophomore year, that I would never graduate from the University of Arizona. But I didn't. I didn't literally thumb my nose at the dean, but I told him I had no intention of doing that. And he assured me that I would never graduate from the University of Arizona. But a couple of years later, as it turned out, between then and when it came time for me to graduate, the rules had changed and ROTC was no longer mandatory. And I did graduate. I had a chance to meet the same dean when I was a graduate student. I was receiving an award for excellence in teaching that year, and he came up to me and said, we've not met, but I want to congratulate you on your award. And I said, well, actually, Dean so-and-so, we have met. You told me at the time that I would never graduate from the University of Arizona because I had refused to take ROTC. And all the blood drained out of his face. And he said, well, at that time, we all had to do things that we didn't necessarily agree with. And I said, well, when it came time for me to disagree with it, I didn't do it. It's a very long story, but I think it speaks to the point that you're making about masculinity and the various ways that we picture ourselves as men. I still had, I don't think, any clear picture of what it was to be a man, but it seemed to me that marching around in the desert in full dress regalia in 100 degree heat, I don't know what that was, but it wasn't my image of manhood. And so I said, thank you very much as to that and started looking elsewhere for what it might be to be a man. Do you think that as an observer and as a chronicler of male behavior and misbehavior, that in the last two years in particular, given the politics of our time, that we are indeed experiencing dramatic, profound, maybe even irreversible transformation on what it means to be an American male. Do you think this is a cathartic, crucial moment, or do you think that this is just another cathartic, crucial moment? Oh, gosh. Um, all of the above? I had a chance to go on NPR after the last election, and uh, the subject then wasn't masculinity in and of itself. As a matter of fact, it was the very next day after the election, and I think I was asked to come on NPR because of the kinds of books that I was writing. I think that people wanted me to explain how the nation could have elected Donald Trump. He seemed to be as astonished as everyone else. And I can just imagine the NPR studio saying, is there anybody out there that knows anything about working class men? And somebody must have said, Richard Russo, doesn't he know something about that? And so I was called on to explain something about this phenomenon of angry white males all coming together at this moment in a way that nobody anticipated. And what I said at the time, and what I still believe to be true, is that in addition to class, there are a lot of moving parts in this, but the anger that we were witnessing in Trump rallies and then the anger that brought so many of those angry white males to the polls in that election. The thing that everybody wanted to talk about was jobs. And I said, I think that it has less to do with jobs and more to do with work. When a man loses his job, he loses his economic wherewithal. Things change within his family. He's not bringing home a paycheck anymore. He may become less of a man in his children's eyes, in his wife's eyes. And yeah, there's all of that. And that's pretty potent. 
But it's also a matter of work. When a man loses his job, he loses also his sense of his place in the moral fabric of the nation. He begins to wonder if he's expendable. And I think that one of the things that have happened as a result of globalization that would have happened anyway, globalization was going to happen, is that when so many people, especially so many blue-collar men, lost their jobs to globalization, I think that they lost their sense of themselves, not just as men, but as contributing members to society. They used to know what their place was in the kind of fabric of society, and they were beginning to feel like that that was now gone. And they began to look around for reasons, and they began to look around for scapegoats. But I think that that had been coming our way for a long time. The myth when I was growing up, there was never any question that I was going to college. The town that I grew up in, a mill town, was everybody understood that the young people of my generation had to get a college education. Whether they were going to become doctors or lawyers or teachers or whatever, education was going to be necessary. And that was a good thing to tell people our age, people of my generation especially if you came from the kind of place that I came from. So I think that was a good thing to tell them. But we continue to tell that story, I think. Go out, become educated, learn to write code, become a diplomat, exercise the life of the mind, learn new skills. We said all those things, and those were good things to say, but I think we also managed to imply to generations of young men, all of whom were probably thinking many of the same things that I thought when I was a young man. What does it mean to be a man? And we were telling them there was something wrong with you if you worked with your hands. If you didn't go out and get a college education or even bet a graduate degree, an MA, or even better yet, a PhD, or if you didn't go to a law school or med school or something like that, and if you found yourself as an electrician or a plumber or a pipe fitter, as one of my characters is in my new book, I think there was a way in which people heard something that said to them that if you work with your hands, that if you do the kind of honest, necessary labor that built this country, there was something wrong with you. You would never make enough money to live in the right house, in the right neighborhood. You would never be invited to the right party. You would never be able to afford to go to dinner in one of the better restaurants. There was this sense that somehow honest labor was being discounted. Whereas writing code, what are we all going to do as Americans? Are we all going to write code? But I think that's the message that went out. And part of the anger that we're dealing with right now and part of the cultural landscape that we're looking at is unfortunately too many people have been told that what they do, what their parents did, what their grandparents did for a living is somehow second rate. Or at least that's my take on it. And it's manifesting itself right now, I think, in some of the uglier manifestations of masculinity that that are imaginable. So that was two years ago, Richard, when your diagnosis or your assessment aired on NPR. And two years later, the world has changed. There is a rise of populism in other parts of the globe as well. The feeling of insecurity that goes against that globalization that lasted a couple of decades, at least in the form that it had, is very reactionary and very strong and even devastating. But jobs are not necessarily more secure. There is a kind of nostalgia for that continuity of a person's life being carried on with dignity and in a single profession Though we are in a period where the young think that I likely will not stay in the same job 
for more than five or ten years and that they will have to reinvent themselves a number of times in their lives if yeah. they want to survive, that nothing is permanent the way the previous generations thought it was permanent, the old forms of relating to one another. So two years after, is this a moment in which you see things differently? We understood that then things are not going to change. What do we do now? I don't know how much has changed in the last two years. It seems to me things were playing at a volume of six or seven on a scale of 10, and now everything seems to be playing at a volume of 10. And we've largely stopped listening to each other. I have been pretty much all of my life, both as a man and as an artist, as a writer, I have been cautiously optimistic. And what I have found, and you're very right to point out that this is not simply America. This is not an American phenomenon. The rise of populism is certainly taking place in Europe. And in Europe, it's more of a return because they've seen that before and they've seen where it led. In places like Hungary, it seems to be happening all over again. This is more of our first experience of the ugliness of this kind of populism that seems to want to portray the world as a place where there isn't enough of everything to go around. And so we have to build walls and, and barriers, those of us who have things, to make sure that we keep them and make sure that nobody else gets even a small share of all of that. And I find that my optimism is challenged. I don't want to say that necessarily my books are becoming darker with each book, but if you were to look at my two novels with Fool in the title, the original book, Nobody's Fool, and the book from a, just a few years ago, Everybody's Fool, many of the same characters were in both of those books. But in the first one, there was a sense that there was nothing particularly all that wrong with the moral fabric of America. I was looking at this fictional place of North Bath, and even the people who didn't have much money were the people who I was focusing on. There was a kind of optimism about life. There wasn't a sense that people who didn't have enough money, they were fighting for a place in the American fabric. They hadn't become disenchanted or disillusioned, and they still felt like, okay, maybe they'd been unlucky for a while, but their entire history hadn't been written, and there were things that they could still do in their own support and defense. By the time you get to Everybody's Fool, which was written 23 years later, although only 10 years of fictional time have elapsed, by the time you get to that second novel and you look at the same community, several important characters have died, including Miss Burl, who was at 80 years of age in the first book, was the book's moral center. And a lot of the, the optimism of that book is really traceable to that old woman and the way she taught her eighth graders, the way she taught them about the community that they lived in and about America. And so there's this portrait in that book of a great teacher who has an important impact on the lives of just about every eighth grader in that town. By the time the second book comes along, she's gone, and so is a lot of the optimism of that book. And in her place... There are at least three portraits of genuine evil in the town that weren't there before. There's a guy who has come to town with reptiles. So in the second book, evil has entered the garden. There is no question about that. There is also a man in that book who gets his pleasure out of beating women. And it's a terrifying portrait, absolutely toxic masculinity. And there's another, there's an academic in it who is kind of the devil himself, who just enjoys manipulating for the sheer pleasure of it, just enjoys destroying people's lives. There was nothing like that in the first book. 
And they're there in the second book because 23 years have elapsed, and the author of that book isn't the same either. I had changed in those years, and, and my optimism, I won't say had eroded. It was just harder to maintain. So to go back to your original question, I think what has changed for those of us who continue to be optimistic and who are cautiously optimistic, I think that there are things certainly about this country that I'm very proud of, including the resistance. We could have all rolled over two years ago. We didn't. And the struggle continues, and I certainly haven't given up. Just as there were no serpents in the first of my fool novels, the author of that first book had not witnessed children in cages in America. Richard, we're reaching the end of the conversation, and I want to ask you about the structure of Chances Are. And I want you to correct me, actually. I wonder if this assessment is accurate, that you are reluctantly writing a kind of detective piece or a novel about the secrets that are revealed in the way that detective literature does by playing with the secrets, allowing readers to be able to get more of a picture in creating a composite of those secrets. The key word here is reluctant. In my reading of Chances Are, I have the impression that you want to do that, but you are actually doing many more things. And would love to hear your response to how that structure came together in the embrace or lack thereof of that traditional approach of what happens when somebody is murdered or disappears or there's a secret and all of a sudden we need to be turning pages in yeah. order to get the information. That is right. what drives that tradition. Well, I think that of all of my novels, this is the one probably that has the most what I would call sleight of hand in it. Because for exactly the reasons that you point out, this book is written like and reads like a thriller for the first two thirds. And it actually poses a question the way mystery novels often do. Who killed Roger Ackroyd, right? You're posing a question and you want readers to turn pages as quickly as possible to find out the answer to this very simple question. And in this book, the question that's posed early mm -hmm. is what happened to JC, this girl that all three of these now 66-year-old men who have been haunted by her their entire lives. The question that I'm posing is what happened to JC? And presumably then people who want to find out the answer to that will read very carefully, but also they'll feel a sense of genuine momentum, a sense of menace the way thrillers do. And your sense as a reader is, I cannot wait to find out what the answer is to this basic question. You begin to suspect the sleight of hand, however, when the question gets answered and there's still about a third of the book left to go. Because typically in an Agatha Christie mystery, who murdered Roger Ackroyd? Once Poirot knows the answer and the reader knows the answer, you are within probably three or four pages of the end of the book. At that point, you stick the landing and you're gone, right? But that's not the kind of book this is. This is a book about Vietnam and it is structured as a thriller in some ways, but it also is bookended by two lying presidents. There are two important weekends, one in 1969, and we're in the middle of the Vietnam War. This begins with these three young men getting their draft numbers, which is going to change the trajectory of their lives. And you have Richard Nixon lying to the American people about what this war is about. And the second weekend 
takes place with, at that point, 2015, there are still a bunch of Republicans. We have no nominee yet, but Trump is hovering. And so by the time the book ends, one of the issues is, of course, that he is going to ascend his throne. So the politics, the culture of the book is one structure of the book, and the other is this thriller structure. By the time you get to the end of the book and the final secret is revealed, one of the things that I hope readers realize is that they haven't been reading a thriller right from the start. They've been reading as if it were, because that's how I set it up. That's how I wanted it to be. But if you're reading it the way you read a typical thriller or detective novel, you're going to be pretty disappointed in this because I'd like to think I'm hunting bigger game here. This has been simply extraordinary, an opportunity to enter the window of your mind and see how you relate to your characters and to real-life people that define your characters and how you see yourself as a writer in culture, both defined by it and defining it. The last comment or question has really to do with lies, something that I mentioned and that you have used right now, lies at the national level and lies at the family level. It is a book right. about lies and the importance of them in shaping who we are. But it is also, I believe, a book that suggests that lies are intrinsic to how we relate to one another. And even though there are worse lies and white lies, it's impossible to get through existence without them in one way or another. Right, right. And also, thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring up Grace Slick, because that line from Somebody to Love is a lyric that haunts this book. When the truth is found to be lies, and all the joy within you dies. This is a book about lies and how we parse them, which ones are just kind of social necessities. Does this dress make me look fat? No, of course, darling, of course it doesn't. You look wonderful. There's that. But then there are the more dangerous lies that we tell to other people, and perhaps the most dangerous of all the lies that we tell ourselves. And all of this, of course, takes place within the larger context of friendship. And when we learn truths about ourselves and about people that we wish we didn't necessarily have to learn, but which in some ways, if you do get to the truth and the lie that you have been telling hasn't destroyed you, then maybe you're stronger for that. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to have you here in In Contrast. Thank you so much for taking my work so seriously and, and for asking such good questions. I think we covered a lot of ground, and I'm very grateful. Thank I'm you. I'm very appreciative. Thank you, and I wish you much success. We live in a time in which to be a man can no longer be about bluffing oneself through life, about displaying unending bravado about submitting others to our capricious will. There's a difference between manliness and manhood. Manliness is excessive. It performs. Behind it is the conviction that others are servants, that their worth is inferior, that they are sheer instruments. Manhood, on the other hand, is about the biological realities of being male, taking responsibility for one's own actions, living with others and not above them, appreciating change and not controlling it. Feminism is an ideological movement whereby women reclaim their equal place in culture. Every man ought to be a feminist. There's no need, of course, for its equivalent, something that could be called maleism. 
because what is needed is a fitting, a reduction into size. Toxic masculinity should give place to balance. Deep at heart, every macho is a lonely creature, arrogant, self-centered, fearful of his own vulnerabilities. In the White House, the president is an example of that dissipation and overindulgence. We need a broader conversation on that extravagance. We need a movement that recognizes not only the battle of the sexes, but the dialogue. We need a public movement about moderation, temperance, restraint. Change for men must first and foremost happen at home, in families, bringing reason and not force into action. Next time on In Contrast. The writing of fiction for me is a long kind of sprawling process in which I discover the world I'm writing about. But when I write a journalistic piece, it's a relatively short amount of the time that I might spend working on the piece because most of that time has gone into achieving that expertise to begin writing. Jennifer Egan on the next In Contrast. To see illustrations of our In Contrast guests by Burns Maxey, And for over 50 previous episodes of our In Contrast podcast, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. Amilan Stavans, thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Quixote Productions.